Welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. On May 1st, we will commemorate Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. One of the most important aspects of remembering is hearing the voices of those who endured this horrific period in human history. We are very lucky to have with us a truly special guest, Holocaust survivor and remarkable Bostonian, Michael Gurenbaum. Michael was born in 1930 in Prague, Czechoslovakia. In 1942, shortly after his father was murdered by the Nazis, he was sent to the concentration camp Terezin with his mother and sister. They remained there until the end of the war. In Terezin, he was housed with 40 other boys. These boys, the Nisharim, Hebrew for eagles, became like brothers to him. After the war, the family moved to the United States. Michael graduated from MIT and Yale and served for two years in the Army, worked for the Boston Redevelopment Authority, and the Massachusetts Department of Public Works. He then co-founded his own company. He was married for 50 years to the late Thelma Gruenbaum, who wrote about the experiences of Michael, also known as Misha, and the rest of the Terezin Room 7 survivors in the book Nisharim, Child Survivors of Terezin. In 2015, Michael published his own book about his ordeal, Somewhere There Is Still a Son. The memoir traces the increasingly appalling events that took place from 1939 to 1945 in Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia, as seen through the eyes of the young Michael. Michael's testimony and the story of the Nisharim Brotherhood is so powerful, and we are so grateful that he's with us here today. Michael joins us now to read a selection from Somewhere There Is Still a Son and speak to us about his experiences. Thank you for inviting me to do a reading from my book, Somewhere There's Still a Sum. This book, published by Simon & Schuster, is my autobiography about the life of a Jewish teenager in Czechoslovakia living under the Nazi regime during World War II. The book has already been translated into half a dozen languages, German, French, Czech, Turkish, Burmese, and into Slovenian, and uh, other uh, publishers in other countries are following pretty soon. The first part of the book describes my family's life after the arrival of the Nazis in Prague, when the Germans almost every day issued one decree after another. First, we had to move from our large apartment in a section of Prague where we lived in great comfort. My father was a prominent attorney, one of three of the most important lawyers working for the richest family in Czechoslovakia. My mother was a socialite and supervised our cook and governess. We owned a car, one of the few people who did. We had to give all that up and move to a much smaller apartment in the Prague ghetto. I made a sample list of the almost daily German decrees in no particular order. We had to turn in our car jewelry, oriental rugs, valuable books, artworks, radios, skis, bicycles, musical instruments, and so on. Anything of any value had to be turned in under the threat of death. We had to wear a yellow star, and therefore whenever I dared to go out in the street, I was often chased by gangs of boys who were pelting me with stones. I had to zigzag from building to building to try to avoid them. We were not allowed to attend the public school, and so I lost six years of formal schooling. 
We were not allowed to play in parks or attend concerts, movies, theater. We had to sit in the back of the streetcars. We were not allowed to travel outside of Prague. We were not allowed to associate with any non-Jewish friends. All our bank accounts were confiscated, and our parents were not allowed to work. We were allowed to purchase only certain groceries, and those were allowed to be bought only on certain days and on certain times of those days. I'm sure you will agree that this was a pretty dreadful and humiliating period in our lives. In addition, my father was arrested by the Gestapo, interrogated for helping his bosses transfer their wealth to England before the Nazis came, and shortly thereafter he was murdered. A year later, my mother, my sister, and I were transported to Theresienstadt, where we stayed for two and a half years until until the war's end. The Theresienstadt camp in which we were held as prisoners was just that. It was portrayed to the world as a model camp to have set the nasty rumors that the Germans were killing off all the European Jews. In truth, Theresienstadt was a transition camp, not an extermination camp, as were many of the concentration camps, mostly in Poland. The Germans even brought a Red Cross representative from Switzerland who was fooled completely as to the true conditions in Theresienstadt. The town was beautified before his arrival. Children were seen playing outdoors. People were sitting in a makeup cafeteria. Concerts and musicals were performed. At one point, the commandant, SS Head Ram, was handing out cans of sardines to a bunch of boys, including me. We had been rehearsed before to say, Schon wieder sardine and Uncle Ram. Sardines again, Uncle Ram. Of course, as soon as the Red Cross entourage left, we had to return the unopened cans and never saw them again, just like before. So now let me set the stage for the drama that unfolded for our family in the fall of 1944. The Germans were beginning to realize that they were going to lose the war. In fact, the Germans capitulated just nine months later, so there was no need for any pretense anymore. But there was still one mission they had to perform for the Führer. They had to kill all the European Jews. In a span of a month's time, in September and October of 1944, they sent off to the east, that's what they called it, 11 trains with about 1,500 human beings on each train. A couple of the trains carried 2,500 people. Nobody in the camp knew what the east meant, but nobody had ever returned from there, and it was a rare exception that some of us received a letter or card from any of those who had departed. Now we know that all these trains were going to Auschwitz, where most of these inmates died in the gas chambers shortly upon their arrival. The departure of these 18,000 people meant that close to two-thirds of all the people living in Theresienstadt at that time were being deported. My mother and her sister-in-law had an agreement that if one of them were deported and had an opportunity to write a card or letter to the other one, they would write something that would please the census. And if it was good, where they arrived, the handwriting would be up. If it was worse, worse than in Theresienstadt, then handwriting would be done. It turns out that my aunt was able to send a card, and it said she was already working as a seamstress. She had never worked as a seamstress before. And the handwriting was down. That was a signal to my mother that she had to do everything possible to keep us in Theresienstadt. Needless to say, the minute after my aunt wrote that card, she was sent to the gas chambers. My mother, my sister, and I had been summoned to the assembly area to be sent on one of these trains a couple of times early in the year, 
but my mother was able to pull us out by reminding those who were making up the lists of all the good things my father had done for the Jewish community in Prague and elsewhere in Czechoslovakia before the war. But this time, when we again received a summons, there was no one for my mother to plead her case to because those people who had prepared the previous list had themselves been deported. We thus had no choice but to return to the assembly area the next day. The only good thing was that our number was over 1350, or close to the end of the line of the people called up to the board to board the train. So that gave my mother one last opportunity to pull a rabbit out of her hat. She suddenly disappeared from where we had sat down and ran to her place of work, the art department. She, f- she managed to find her boss, Joe Speer, the famous Dutch artist who headed the arts department, and told him that we had received a summons for the transport that he should alert the assessment in charge of the arts department that the order he gave them to make teddy bears for his children and children of his friends for the upcoming Christmas would that would thus not get filled if she wasn't there to work on it. Fortunately, Mr. Spear immediately found the assessment and told him what my mother said. The assessment thought about it for a while and told Mr. Spear, okay, take her out. And then Mr. Spear said, but she has two children, and if they go, she will go with them. So the assessment said sternly, all right, pull them out as well, but no one else. So he scribbled the order on a small piece of paper, which Mr. Spear then gave to my mother, and she rushed with it back to the assembly area where we were anxiously awaiting for her. She ordered us to come with her, and the three of us approached the registration desk and handed it in, the slip of paper from the assessment. Can we leave now, she asked. No, you can't leave yet. You have to go to the second floor of the assembly area and wait there in one of the rooms until the train departs. So we picked up our luggage, and uh, these were really the only possessions that we had at that point, and we started to walk up the stairway leading to the second floor. We entered the hallway and opened the door to the first room. The room was packed with people, and there was no place for us to sit down. There must have been about 30 to 35 people there. We continued to walk along the hallway and opened the door to the second room. The same story, still no space for us to sit down. We then walked to the third and last room, the one furthest away from the stairway. That room was only by half full, and we were thus able to enter it and sit down. You could hear voices from below as people were still boarding the cattle cars on the train. And when the, when the boarding was completed, there was silence. We thought the next thing we would hear was the departure of the train. Instead, suddenly, there was this tremendous commotion. We could hear the soldiers with their large dogs barking fiercely, running up the stairs, yelling, 50 more, 50 more, their big black boots clicking loudly, and they opened the door to the first room next to the stairway and pulled everyone out. You can imagine this horrific scene. People who thought they were safe were fighting fiercely, but they were being pulled out of the room against their pleading, crying, screaming, and yelling. They were forced to go downstairs and board the train. And then the soldiers entered the second room and pulled out half of the people from that room as well. The horrific scene was again being repeated, and in the meantime, we in the third room were holding our breath. You could hear a pin drop. There was a little boy there whose mother put her hand over his mouth so he wouldn't make a sound and bring us to the attention of the soldiers. 
After a while, we could hear the soldiers' footsteps again, but instead of approaching our room, they were moving away. Then, finally, the commotion ended. It was eerily quiet. And finally, we began to hear the squealing sounds of steel and steel. The train was finally beginning to pull away. As you can imagine, there was total jubilation in our room. Everyone was hugging everyone else. We had survived another day. There were four more transports after this one, but we were not on any of the lists. In the spring of 1945, the Germans started to construct gas chambers in Theresienstadt because by then Auschwitz was already liberated, but fortunately they ran out of time. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, I am able to be here today to tell you this story. In spite of my mother's amazing perseverance, we still needed also a stroke of luck to end up with a high number and to find refuge in the room that was the furthest away from the stairway in the assembly area. Thank you for listening. And now I will ask uh, three questions which I think you uh, would like to know the answers to. The first question is, how did you arrive at the title of this book? Just a couple of days after we were liberated, my mother wrote a letter to her friends abroad. The letter is copied in the introduction of my book. The last paragraph reads as follows. We do not know yet how the future will shape up for us. None of our old friends are alive anymore. We do not know where we are going to live. We know nothing. But somewhere in the world there's still a sum. Mountains, the ocean, books, small clean apartments, and perhaps again the rebuilding of a new life. Little did we all know that just eight years later, after a two-year stay in Cuba where I had to learn very quickly the Spanish and English languages, I would be standing on the steps of MIT in Massachusetts with my cape and cap and gown next to my beaming mother, having just graduated from this prestigious institution. Quite amazing. Second question. How many of the boys you roomed with in Terezine survived the war? What happened to them, and did you ever see them again? Out of the 80 boys who were through, who went through our room in Terezine, there were 40 there at any given time, but some were sent away on transfers to the east, and so others came in. Out of those 80, 12 survived. Two stayed in Czechoslovakia after the war and didn't survive the communist regime. All others emigrated all over the world, to Australia, to Brazil, to various countries in Europe, to Canada, and to the USA. After the communists were overthrown in 1989, we held our first reunion in Prague, to which everybody came with their spouses, and since then we had five more reunions. The last one in Czechoslovakia was held in 2008, and was attended by 62 people since we all invited the second and third generations. By the way, the Australians and the Brazilian second and third generations became the best of friends in the ensuing years. The last reunion was held a few years ago near Franta's home in Los Angeles, a year before he passed away at the age of 91. Third question, what lessons have you learned from this entire experience? I always say I learned two main things. Don't get married to your possessions. They can always be replaced at a later date. We lost all our possessions on four separate occasions and in the end replaced them all and more. And don't ever take no for an answer. 
You might have to go to 10 different people, each of whom will say no to your idea. But chances are the 11th one might say yes. Display a tough hide. You need that in life. Be prepared that the number of disappointments you will receive in life will far outweigh your successes. Michael, thank you so much for that reading, and thank you for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. You're welcome. We read two very different books about this period in your life in Terezine. The first is Nisharim, Child Survivors of Terezine. The second is Somewhere There is Still a Sun, from which you just read. Can you tell us a little bit about how each book came to be written and their intended audiences? Okay. So regarding the book entitled Nisharim, Child Survivors of Terezine, uh, which was written by my wife, but I, I had a, lot, a big part in it. At some point after the communists were overthrown in Czechoslovakia in 1989, I invited all the Nesharim living in the eastern part of the USA and in Canada to come to my house and stay there during a weekend. Uh, Paul Weiner and George Rapper from New York and Robin Hertz from Toronto came and we had a nice small reunion. And then, if, three years later, Hanusch Holzer in Switzerland set up a complete four-day reunion in a hotel just outside of Prague, Czechoslovakia, to which all the Nesharim and their wives came from around the world, Brazil, Australia, Germany, France, Switzerland, USA, and Canada. After this reunion, I suggested to my wife, Thelma, who's, who wrote the book, to write a book about all these men because I found it fascinating that they all managed to find a new life in different continents, had to learn new languages and customs in the countries that they settled in and were successful in whatever endeavors they pursued. Subsequent reunions were held in Prague every five or four years, and at the next one, Thelma presented a draft of her book to the participants. They all agreed they wanted to keep it just within the family mostly because some of them were still working and didn't want to bring their past to the attention of their colleagues. They had never mentioned it to anyone. But a few years later, after our urging, they finally gave in and gave them the permission to find a publisher. Regarding the book entitled Somewhere There's Still a Sun, this book came about because I had inherited my mother's album of Terezin memorabilia, and I was getting older. I wanted to find a museum or institute which would take good care of it. I chose the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington and asked the curator to come to my house to look at it. She came and couldn't believe her luck. These days, survivors give them one letter or one document. But here was a complete collection of documents from Terezine, a variety of tickets, orders, photos, letters, and so on. She got all excited and took it back to show it to the entire board who were equally excited about it. And so I got caught up. Uh, caught up in the excitement and wrote a children's story having the teddy bear that saved our lives narrating it. After writing to some 80 literary agents and 80 publishers, I was unable to find anyone who would take a chance of publishing, publishing it. Then, after two and a half years, I suddenly received a call from the editor of Aladdin Books, a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster, saying that they think there's, a, there's much more to the story than what I wrote about, and they would like to send a professional writer to Boston to interview me. And the rest is history. They felt that the best way to present my story is as one teenage, teenager to another, and that was my age when I experienced it. 
So when we read the book and the reading that we just heard, it was just incredible. Uh, we were so overwhelmed by what you write about your mother. Uh, she exhibited these incredible qualities of, you know, survival and determination and love. And, you know, just to survive that camp under these just unbelievably perilous circumstances that you just read about. And we just heard how she turned her knowledge and experience making teddy bears into an opportunity to rescue you from being transported to Auschwitz. Will you share with us a special memory about your mother? My mother was a socialite, a wife of a very successful lawyer in Prague. But when the Germans came and took her husband away, she had to find a way to make a living. She was always interested in nature, and so she bought all kinds of equipment and started to make a sal make and sold artificial flowers to people. And that's why when we arrived at Jerusalem, she ended up working in the arts department where in the fall of 1944, one of the assignments she received was making teddy bears requested by the SS men supervising that department. For my mother, her two children were the only thing that was left from her previous life. She lost her husband, all her close relatives, all her property. So she made every effort to save them. Franta, your teacher in charge of Room 7 and Terezine, uh, just a young man himself, was another remarkable figure in your life. He assumed a parenting role for all the boys in that room while they were separated from their families. Even just reading about this person, I was astounded at his strength of character and his creativity. What were some things that you learned from him that you held on to throughout your experience in your life? Franta was indeed a most unusual person. He was thrust into the role of father, mother, teacher, disciplinarian at the age of just 20. He controlled 40 rambunctious 12-year-old boys, partially through <laughs> intimidation and understanding, and partially because he tried to overcome the miserable conditions we were living under by making life interesting for us. His main motto was communa. You are going to survive only if you work together. And teamwork has been something that I have always enjoyed throughout my entire life. That and being interested in many facets of life. Picking up on that issue of teamwork, you described some times in Terezin where you played soccer and where you put on a production of a children's opera. How did activities and sort of the, the structure that was created for you um, by your teacher in Room 7 help you survive at the camp? Well, simply playing soccer and singing made us kids happy and forget the deplorable conditions we were living under. Were there memories that came to you during the process of writing these books that you had forgotten over the years? I think of my Holocaust years every day. But of course, many details <clears throat> have slowly been forgotten. But when my co-author, Todd, started sending me drafts of what he had written, that certainly jarred my memory, and I made sure the next draft included those as well. It's amazing that after you lost out on years of formal education, when you got to America, you went to two of the most prestigious institutions in the country, MIT and Yale. How did your experience motivate you to these outstanding achievements? Well, when we were liberated in 1945, we went back to Prague and tried to resume as normal life as possible without my father, our close relatives, all our friends, all of whom perished, perished during the Holocaust. But my mother soon saw the handwriting on the wall that the communists were going to take over the Czech government 
and she decided that she did not want to live under another totalitarian regime. So she asked my father's former employer, who by then was in the USA, to send us uh, U.S. visas. He did, but we couldn't enter the USA because there was a quota system on, and so we had to go somewhere else to wait until our number came up. We ended up in Cuba, where my mother enrolled me in an American high school. I didn't know any English nor Spanish, but somehow, to the astonishment of the principal, I managed to satisfy all the necessary requirements for graduation in two years' time. Fortunately, our quarter number came up just then, and since the principal gave me a glowing recommendation, I was admitted to MIT when we arrived in the USA. With the wind behind my back, I managed to finish MIT in three years. So who would have ever imagined, especially my mother, when she wrote in her first letter after liberation that somewhere there must still be a son and perhaps again the rebuilding of a new life, that's just eight years after liberation that I would be standing on the steps of MIT in my cap and gown next to my beaming mother after having just graduated from that venerable institution. I was certainly very motivated to catch up with my peers after having lost six years of formal schooling during the Holocaust. When I first met you, I discovered that you had a truly impressive career here in Boston. What are some of your proudest and most meaningful accomplishments here? I had, of course, quite a number of meaningful accomplishments in my professional career. When I came here from New Haven, I, uh, having received a master's degree in city planning at Yale, I noticed that all local transportation agencies kept all the important statistics about their agencies to themselves. And so working for the Boston Redevelopment Authority at that time, I collected all such information and published it in a thick book entitled Transportation Facts for the Boston Region. This had never been done before. I also presented to the traffic engineer in Boston a plan to make all the streets and back bay alternate one ways instead of the hodgepodge I found there when I came. He implemented my plan. And when working as special assistant for the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Public Works, I published several publications to show many of the successful projects the staff had produced to educate the public and help raise the staff's morale. So I, I read that you donated some of the reparation money received from the German government to establish a fund at MIT's Music Library to honor your parents. Tell us about your connection to Jewish music. Well, I, while I was a student at MIT, I started working at their music library on a part-time basis. And in fact, in my last year there, I worked there half-time. This was my first job in this country, and I certainly could use the money I earned there, which I received at the rate of 90 cents an hour. So when a few years ago I received some reparations from the German government, I approached the music librarian and asked him how best I could donate these reparations in the name of my parents. He came up with a suggestion of expanding their Jewish collection, whether it be books, tapes, record albums, scores, and so on. I thought that would have been something that my parents would certainly have been very interested and found appropriate, and so we proceeded with that idea. Our generation has the benefit of hearing firsthand from survivors of the Holocaust. 
Why is it so important for you to write and talk about your experience, particularly to students and young adults? For most of my life, I never talked about my Holocaust experiences, mostly because I didn't think anybody who didn't go through such experiences would have any way to understand them. It was only when I realized how important my mother's Terezin album was and how meaningful it was for other people. I became, at the age of 85 or so, very interested in telling my story because suddenly the burden of educating people about the Holocaust seemed to rest on my shoulders as the number of living Holocaust survivors seemed to be dwindling at a rapid pace. I realized that none of my friends and relatives were around to inform others, and especially the younger generations, of what happened 70 years ago, and that it was really a must to teach them and alert them to find ways to make sure it wasn't going to happen again. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for doing that reading. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Listeners, to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and follow at Jewish Boston on social media for all of our great content. Thanks as always to our editor and mascot, Jesse, and to Ryan for our music. 